Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Probably pubescent. Hello, this is Benjamin Boyce. I just spent an hour and a half with the coziest Carrie Callahan on record thus far. While Carrie Callahan has a personality, she's still deciding on whether or not to be a personality, just as I am a personality, and you too could be a personality if you went out of your way to actually select a profile picture for your avatar. But anyhow, Carrie Callahan is known somewhat for being a de-transition-er. While she doesn't want to pin her personality and her identity on the status of being trans or detrans, we do talk about her dysphoria, her body dysphoria, and her gender dysphoria, actually quite in some detail. And we get beyond that. We get into different ways that the conversation is forming and being deformed within the realm of what is gender, what is sexuality, what is politics, and so on and so forth. This is a wide-ranging conversation. I suggest that you make a cup of tea or get yourself a root beer or something that I drink, such as a, let's say, Badhitz Zafha, India Pale Ale, which is what I was drinking tonight. But however you need to stay hydrated, stay hydrated. That's what my doctor told me. And strap on in for another Wonderful time with Benjamin Boyce and his guest, this time being Gary Callahan. <laughs> How are you? Good. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. I'm on my couch with my dog. Oh, yeah? I've got my mocktail going. Yeah. Do you want to see my dog? Yeah, sure. I'm not afraid of okay. dogs at a distance. This... Oh. This is Paco. <laughs> Yeah, I don't think he's super scary. Sometimes he uh, acts scary or like he tries to pretend like he, he identifies as scary is what I'm telling you. Oh, yeah. 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 You look cozy. How are you? I'm good. Yeah, I, I'm feeling cozy. I oh, like good. I like my evenings to be very cozy. Yeah, it helps with the day. Yeah, Totally. Yeah. And also like just that age where I'm just like starting to die slowly. So I just want to be comfortable. <laughs> you're getting, you... you're getting um, evening carry is what I'm telling you. <laughs> right. You're preparing for the eternal rest by being presently yeah. restive. Yes. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Good. I totally. love the glasses too. Hey, thanks. I think they um, make me look smarter. Um, yeah. In a very brazen smart kind of way rad cool brazen that's a great i love that i want to be brazen it just it just came to me yeah like oh i want to be a snap (laughs) (laughs) like the breakfast cereal yeah like snap yeah (laughs) snap crackle pop yeah i just like that as a personality type like a snapper uh well but not like the the social justice uh kind of uh I I cannot Snap deal chorus. when people do that instead of clapping. I cannot deal. Why do people do that? Originally, <laughs> originally, I, I think it was because um, 
it's triggering to people with uh, who've experienced uh, being slapped as a child or no, no, I don't know, but really, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but it was supposed to be like a softer, kinder, gentler form of appreciation. But then it just became code for being cool. That's what I think. Yeah, that's when I want to be appreciated by by cl- clapping, lots of clapping and yelling. Yeah. Like yeah, the Orson Welles kind of thing. And yelling? Yeah, 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 definitely. When I want my appreciation loud and I yeah. want it to be a big deal. Yeah, more of a white snake than a beat poet kind of thing. Yes. <laughs> I get you. Yeah. Definitely. How's your practice going? Oh, it's good. Yeah, all my kiddos are good. Um yeah, it's fun. Um, I'm really like when I graduated school, I was a little bit bummed out that like I wasn't like with the, with how the atmosphere of stuff is right now. It wouldn't make any sense. And it's kind of impossible for me to just like work with clients who experience gender dysphoria. And when I graduated school, I was like sort of bummed out by the reality of that, like oh, shoot, like, you know, here's this thing I care, I really care about, but I, I actually have this really challenging full-time job, like, working with people with other stuff going on. Um, but now I actually am kind of grateful that that's how things are. Because, um, hmm. like, long, long, long term, like, 10 years out, um, I definitely see myself working with detransitioners and Hmm. um, I work with like mostly Medicaid clients right now and I feel like um, what what I think is going to happen long term is that like there's going to be a lot more detransitioners and they're going to have actually like a lot of the same challenges that my Medicaid clients have does that make sense like in what way oh like insurance wise or like mental like like financial stress and like how to get like services and housing and stuff like that so um so i yeah so my practice is going well i'm definitely learning but i like it yeah that's an interesting point though because there's a lot of i was speaking with um claire graham today who uh is a person with an intersex condition and she's been speaking out against how uh the trans activists are using intersex people to advance their weird ideological positions and then end up getting a lot of funding, at least in the UK, the trans activists or the groups that are uh, run, I guess now by people who uh, ascribe wholeheartedly to that form of trans activism are getting money from the government specifically for intersex people and then actually doing a lot of harm to the intersex clients by, or that, that group by putting all this gender theory stuff on a medical condition and, you know, and then making it even more difficult for them to get through, to get access to their medic, uh, their medical care because of all this weird pronoun and the swapping of gender and sex. So that's a long oh, wow. preamble to say that there's a lot of resources and there will be more for trans specific people and the, the houses and the, you know, the groups that are there to provide services for trans people probably won't end up supporting detrans people 
And even right. maybe even like what we kind of see now is even shunning them. So these people are going to be doubly impacted because they're going to have a lot of conditions that they need to work through. And like you said, financial stress. Um, right. And so there, totally. there might be a, a big need for that. Um, especially if these groups that are running these, these organizations that are running this aid don't really want to deal with that for ideological reasons. Yeah, I, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I know a fair amount of detransitioned people who still have to go to um, trans healthcare centers because that's where the knowledgeable endocrinologists are. Hmm. So, I mean, like if you've had, if you've already had something like a orchiectomy or a hysterectomy or something like you got to go to an endo that knows what they're doing. And um, so that usually is in a trans specific context. Hmm. Um, and then um, hmm. fr frankly, like I've also just known a lot of detransitioners who like their housing was still kind of within a trans context. Like they were still living with all trans people and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, so Yeah. The ideological thing makes it rough. I think people right now still are at a point where they just kind of like aren't fully out as D-trans, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's kind of, it seems like it's all in because of the, the state of discourse around this. It's that you're either all in or you're all out. Yeah, you're all in, you're all out. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and I think we talked in the last maybe video about how like to be kind of like taken seriously in trans healthcare, you really need to be like on board with pediatric transition. Like it's kind of like an all in or all out thing with, with that too. You know, there's no room for like, um, okay, I work with this kind of trans population, but I don't feel great about this pediatric transition stuff. You're not, you can't, you can't do like an 80, 20 on the platform. You got to be all in or all out on the platform, That's... which is crazy for medical care. Yeah, that sounds pretty uh, scandalous, um, if not malpractice worthy. But yeah, yeah, there's a way better way of framing that. But yeah, it's it's definitely notable. It's um, like like for instance, um, I don't know if so. U.S. Path is like the United States Professional Association for Transgender Health, and at least at their first conference which was like 2017, like no reporters were, oh, there was no such thing as like a press pass or anything like that. So there were no reporters there. Hmm. And um, definitely like how these doctors and therapists like talk about things when it's just like them in a room is very different from how, what gets presented to the public. Hmm. And, um, <laughs> and that's so strange. That's so strange for healthcare. Um, you know, you were there for that in the 20th Yeah. Yeah. Is, mm -hmm. You said U.S. Path, but I've heard of W Path. Is that the same thing? Um, w Path is the world. Oh, uh, world. Professional. Okay. And then they made um, a separate U.S. Path one. Like, and I, I believe there's a European um, branch also. So the U.S., I think they are separate organizations now. I'm not sure that. I think you join and pay dues to U.S. Path separately from W. Path. So you're saying that they, they speak differently when they're amongst themselves as opposed to the public. And you're not talking about them using more specific jargon, like in a medical term and being too technical. But you're saying the way that they think about things is presented 
differently to the world than it is amongst themselves. Yeah, I think that they just um, like say kind of crazier shit <laughs> like when hmm. they're in the room by themselves together. I remember seeing a um, a presentation about like it was like um, transitioning like non-binary youth and uh, this endocrinologist said that she expected that in like in the future there would be like a non-binary sex hormone to be able to give kids. And like, that doesn't make any damn sense. Like, <laughs> like I remember her saying that and never, no one in the room laughed. Everyone in the room took it seriously. This is like a room with like a hundred people. And it's like, wait, what, what the hell are you talking about? Like the human body runs on like testosterone or estrogen. Like, like, Talk a little more about how we would come up with a different sex hormone. Hmm. It doesn't... Well, anyway. Are they imagining like some perfectly pure androgynous entity that floats through yeah. the world without plugging into it? Yeah, I think so. Via like these... a hairless, a hairless, like, like sex characteristic free human. Hmm. Um, Right, which, right from the frame of a Marilyn Manson video, it sounds like. Right, which sounds to me like okay, like that's kind of the fantasy of a of a person who is scared to interact with human sexuality, right? Like, mm. okay, <laughs> I don't know. Maybe that's, you know, maybe that's harsh. This might be a little too weird for you, and uh-huh. So we can just back away from this. But I knew this, um, I knew this individual, um, this gay man um, when I was 20. And this was when I was just out of like my little Christian bubble and I was interacting with the world. I was in Chicago. I was working at a, a fancy place down in the Gold District or the Third Coast or the Gold Coast. Where'd District. you work in Chicago? Uh, the, the, it was a Starbucks like right on Oak and Rush. Um, if you know oh, I that. used to live in Logan Square. Okay, yeah, I I yeah. briefly de- dated a redhead in in Logan Square. Um Oh, lucky you. It was a disaster. Um okay. anyway, so I started interacting with people that were completely different and like I was started just interact with homosexual people for the first time, right? Uh gay mm. men specifically. And like, oh, these are just people. You know, and just like, oh, okay, like it, it, it's too much work to not love them, you know, as who they are. But there's one person that really stood out to me and they had a very particular aesthetic and a way of just like walking through the room that was very, very special in a way. And I had this dream about them. It was a very powerful dream where they just kind of walked into the room and they were just like shedding feathers everywhere. And I just understood this person as... I, I just understood this person as somebody who doesn't fit in the world in that sexual binary way. It wasn't, it was the closest to an uh, androgynous individual that I had ever mm. met up until then. There were still definitely a male, a male version of this entity. Um, but it just, it was like, like an angel. I don't know how to describe it. So I'm just trying to say that like, there are certain people that I've interacted with that don't necessarily neatly fit into, uh, the, the male or the female, uh, standard binary and th- mm. they're special people and, and they, they just have a different feeling, uh, just, uh, and by feeling just the way that I gauge them is just different. Um, oh, okay. 
But like, at so the you're same sort t- of talking about like on a spiritual or energy level. Yeah, on an energetic level, I guess, is the probably yeah. the most mundane way of saying it. Um, and and mm-hmm. certain trans people that I, I know, especially the males, um, the tr- trans women, I guess, is the correct term. Um, th- they just seem they seem different to me and they, they just feel more androgynous in the sense of like kind of pre-puberty. Like they're, they, they, they maintain or sustain like a prepubescent kind of, uh, just vibe. I'm sorry. This is like way out of my, keep going. It's so weird. I love it. (laughs) I love that. It started with a dream about someone who made a like very big impression on you. I love that actually. It was just, yeah. So, yeah. So, I mean, imagine like being that person and like making such an impact on people when you walk by them, right? Because, yeah. like, this person made a big impact on you, but, like, for sure you're not the only person who, like, was, like, whoa, you know? Yeah. And, like, I don't know, just imagine, like, trying to make sense of who you are in the world when, like, yeah. the response you get is, like, so big like that. Yeah, the, um, that response kind of leads to a responsibility or, like, a hyper-awareness oh. of themselves, Yeah, you know? Um, and so I, I do really deeply sympathize with, um, a certain aspect of the transgender experience by just like being persistently aware that you don't fit into the expectations that society has upon you and that you, you even have upon yourself. And I just, I feel like I kind of understand what gender dysphoria is a little bit in that way. Um, just on a sympathetic awareness. Yeah, like a hyper awareness or just a well, okay, in in my discussions, like I really appreciate Blanchard and his work and he's an amazing individual and stuff. I still think that there's room for development on the autogynophile uh male cuz it seems like there's certain males who are very attracted to themselves as women, but there's a certain contingent of males that are very unattracted to themselves or or like interrupted in their life by being a man a man and like really loathing or having a very deep sense of disgust about their masculine characteristics and i wonder Uh if that's not a subset and this is all just a way of asking you or wanting to ask you like when you talk about your gender dysphoria like what what are you talking about like what is that to you yeah um so mine is um, I feel like over the past year, it's a, this has actually become clear to me. Mine is super, super body dysmorphic. Um, so it's very much about my body. And um, it's very much about like shame and disgust for my body. Um, and you know what actually finally clicked for me that it was body dysmorphic was that, um, you know, like it kind of like since I got out of the trans community, it, I have like periods where my gender dysphoria will be like elevated and then periods where it will really die down. Um, when I was in the trans community, it was just like constantly elevated, but, Hmm. um, but I noticed that when it would get elevated, it would be times when like, I noticed that I would feel it would be like times when I felt really powerless and then times when I felt really humiliated. Um, And it's funny that I've had this experience for so long and I finally connected that last year. Um, But so for me, like gender dysphoria means that like 
I look in the mirror and I want to like rip, rip, like, hmm. um, my secondary sexual characteristics off. Um, and, and do pardon me asking, do you, you want to be reduced into something that's sexless or, or do you not want to have like that extra, is it like something that's there that's extra that doesn't need to be there or hmm. that the presence I mean, of I it... think. I sort of think that the um, desire has actually like really changed over the years. When I was trans identified, I definitely had an image of myself uh, as a guy that like I could kind of always envision every time I looked in the mirror. Like, so when I looked in the mirror back then, I could like almost kind of see like the guy that you know, I kind of like thought I was, and then there would also be like, like all this other stuff, right? Like all this stuff I don't want. Um, but now like, that's not, it's not like I, that part is really gone these days when I have episodes of gender dysphoria. I don't, so, so that has really changed. Like I don't, I used hmm. to be like really, um, I thought I had this idea or this, this vision that I would like look like David Duchovny as a dude, which is like so. <laughs> I have that stupid. every day. <laughs> right, it's very upsetting not to look like David Duchovny for sure. Young David Duchovny, not David Duchovny now, but like you know, '90s X Files. Okay, Duchovny. yeah, X Files, not Californication. David. No, okay. I never wanted to look like Californication, David Duchovny. But like, so honestly, like very clearly looking back now, I'm like, uh, Carrie, that's who you were like fixated on as a like pubertal girl. Yeah. Like, that, that, that's not. Um, but so that's not there anymore. So like pretty much, I think it's probably more accurate to describe what I experience these days as like body dysmorphic symptoms so body dysmorphic so it's not seated specifically in the in the gender expression of your body but it's just like being embodied itself is yeah these days it's just it i mean i think that the what i had back then was also this like very persistent obsessive fantasy you know Hmm. but i don't have that anymore like i know that if i were to transition i would look nothing like david duchovny I know, and so I, you know, I like. I know that the reality of what I would look like has nothing to do with that. Yeah. With that very obsessive fantasy I had, so that, so luckily that fantasy is not there anymore. Did you? Do you think that you constructed the your David Duchovny ness um, as a way to uh, to compensate or to cope with? what you feel now? Like, was it like another layer that you've since gotten away? It's like, well, I don't want to be this, but if I imagine myself as this other thing, then I won't have to deal with that. With what I, I don't think like. so. Yeah. You know, I was like, I had kind of a hard, like early adulthood. And, um, I think that I maybe wasn't taking seriously, like situations where I felt powerless and overwhelmed and like I, I truly didn't have the skill sets to navigate them and so um hmm. I think that that um obsessive fantasy of like what life would be like if I were a dude and the kind of dude that I would be um 
kind of like kept me afloat because it kept me from fully experiencing my life and I couldn't handle my life. You know what I mean? Like it was sort of a protective thing. Like, okay, like this is shit, but I'm really supposed to be David Duchovny. Yeah. And I would be living the life I'm meant to live if I were got to be the dude I'm supposed to be. So it was like a self-protective thing. Were you overwhelmed because of what you can see now as like a hypersensitivity or were you not, uh, did you not have the stability to reach uh, a certain level of competence when you were out of the home, let's say? Those are great questions. Okay. So I think it's a mix. I actually think that there are social dynamics um, and kind of like emotional experiences that I am a little bit hypersensitive to. Specifically, I have always been hypersensitive about uh, being objectified and, um, hmm. and, uh, I have never, ever, ever been good with, uh, like hmm. good at navigating, like kind of like, um, how do I want to say this? Like, you know, there are lots of workplaces and contexts where it, it, part of the context is like kind of like banter about sex right and banter about people's bodies and stuff like that and like i'm i'm just like i'm hypersensitive about that stuff and -hmm. i'm not like a lot of fun in Mm. that kind of way i like i like i get real sensitive i get real weird i get real awkward and and i don't really like it and um so i think that that's partly about hypersensitivity and i think that it's also partly about social skills um you know, like in, in a situation like that, I get anxious enough that I can't really navigate it and feel powerful at the same time. Mm. Where, yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. What do you mean by powerful? Uh, like, like that you have a sense of agency or that you can say no to this and yes to that thing or like redirect yes. the conversation? Yeah. I lose my sense of agency. Hmm. Like I kind of like freeze up. And like dissociate a little bit. And I, yeah, I forget, I get anxious enough that I forget all the different paths that I could take and choices I could make. To... Huh. Okay. Yeah. And that has to, that has to do with anxiety. And it also has to do with like skills, I think. Hmm. And and then, you know, sometimes there are just situations that are fucked up and it's like, you, you don't, you yes. don't have a sense of agency because someone actually wanted to create the experience of you not having agency. So Yeah. Yeah. It's, you made me think that there's this thing called the hookup culture. Mm -hmm. Um, But in, in male spaces, there's this thing called the checkout culture where you're checking out, you know, this girl, that girl, or like, like what you're talking about. Like, it seems that's kind of what you're talking about. Like this, this kind of evaluative uh, interaction with bodies that. that... Oh, yes. I'm awful with that. Yes. That's pretty predatorial. That's kind of, uh, Yeah. yeah. Right. Right. Um, I'm not good with it. I'm not good hmm. at it. I like pre predatorial. Wow. That's neat. <laughs> well, I think, yeah. I mean, I'm, 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 I'm walking on eggshells here because uh, I have, I'm in a very particular situations with my audience where I have <sighs> the attention of feminists and I have the attention of MRAs, you know, and I have the attention of all these different groups and I know the sensitivities of all these groups. And what I'm trying to do is just say, okay, there's a way of talking about these things. That's not shameful. It's just honest. 
and we can talk about these things. Uh, but it's interesting because part of your biography is that you ended up in a very male space and a very judgmental male space with the uh, with uh, yeah. with comedy with stand up and and yeah. and it's actually those are skills that you actually have to have like to be very severe about people so you can gauge your audience and because they're checking you out so you have to be checking them out uh, and yeah. so that can. That can slide over into like kind of reducing people into their characteristics and stuff. Totally. And like one thing that pretty much every comedian has to do is that when you get up on stage, you got to do at least one joke right off the bat about how you look. And that's not <laughs> just women. That's literally everyone. Like start looking like though that joke is coming in the one of the first two jokes. And huh. you have to do that because the audience is anxious about like, well, first of all, it's always like you don't anytime a stand-up comedian gets on stage you're like this could be awful this person could be awful and like comedians kind of have to right away offer up like okay whatever is funny about my physicality like whether it's like my skin color or like my huh. height or anything and like i have a big ass so like <laughs> to be like <laughs> to be a woman i've never seen like, it but i'm so glad that i have confirmation <laughs> So, like, I would constantly be in these situations, um, like, where I would get off stage and then the guy coming up, like, after oh. me would make jokes about my body. Hmm. Um, but, huh. like, not – usually they weren't, like, hostile. He wasn't, he wasn't, like, making jokes like I was a freak, but he would be making jokes about, like, you know, like, me being thick or, like, hmm. stuff like that. So, like – those guys in comedy, like to them, it's a it's a very like working class male subculture. They do not consider calling you thick like offensive or, you know, it's like a friendly thing. They think they're being friendly, you know. Mm -hmm. So yeah, for my hypersensitive ass, like Weird. it's very strange that I sought out that context and for so long. Yeah. I, I kind of want to get um, inappropriately Freud, Freudian, but it seems like you were trying to put yourself in a position where you would challenge yourself with your sensitivity. Uh, I totally, yeah. I do think, like, looking back, I very clearly was seeking out hmm. situations where um, I, there was some kind of, I was definitely trying to create the situation where, uh, what what my body meant to other people was going to be discussed openly in front of me, right? Like, Weird. otherwise, why would you put your whole body in front of a comedy audience, right? Uh. So, yeah. I think it's interesting when people do that, when people constantly create exactly the situation they're going to be uncomfortable in. Yeah. And I definitely did that for a really long time. Hmm. But then for me, it just, like, I, I, it just like built and built and built. Like I just kept doubling and du doubling down again and again until I was trying to like resolve it through transition instead of hmm. just being like, maybe you don't want to be, <laughs> maybe you don't like being objectified. <laughs> maybe just chill out. You don't have to be objectified if you don't want to. Huh. How did the, how did the idea of transition enter your head? Um, well, I was living in, let me think. So the first trans guy I met was at college at Ohio State. And I remember my very first thought was like, I am so jealous he gets to cut off his breasts. That was like exactly what I thought. 
which is an interesting thought because it's not like it's not like I thought like oh I'm like him that's not the thought it was like shoot if I was like him I could cut off my breasts um and then like I got out of college I started dating women um I moved to Chicago trans guys were like kind of all over the queer scene in Chicago um and they were usually like the most popular people in the scene. <laughs> Why? And, what was the characteristics um, that made them so popular? Okay. It's because women who date women love masculine female people. So like it was like the trans guys and it was the butch girls that were the most popular. All the man, none the dick. Is that <laughs> Shut <funny>? up. <laughs> sorry. I'm really sorry. Like it just it came to me. <laughs> I mean, like, trans guys are usually, like, baby-faced and cute, so. Yeah. 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 So, anyway, um, so, you know. They were I desirable, that's, that's what you're saying. Yeah, and they were radical. Being radical in that scene was very important, and, like, being trans, you were just, like, you know, you were just, like, automatically radical so you didn't hmm. even have to do any like work on like prison abolition you could just be radical hmm. um so uh so yeah so um and then you know my thought still at that point was like shoot like if i was like them i could like get my breasts cut off that was always like my one main thing that i always wanted hmm. and um and then, like, as the years went on, kind of, like, the category of what trans was expanded, right? Like, yeah. so you didn't have to be a trans guy. You could be genderqueer. You could be non-binary. And most importantly to me, you could be genderqueer, non-binary, and that meant you could cut your breasts off. And, um, hmm. and then I think that, like... I, I mean, it's also important that I started dating someone who was, like, non-binary and had, like, had a mastectomy, right? And, like, so, you know, you're kind of, like, I think I was sort of looking for all the similarities. And, like, there were tons of similarities. Like, you know, talking about our childhood, like, I, I don't know, the case in my head that I was always trans just like built up and built up and built up. But then like all these things from my childhood that are really just like tomboy stuff or like nerdy tomboy stuff, like loving the X-Files. Like obviously <laughs> no, now I can be like, obviously that doesn't mean that you're any kind of trans person. But like when I was, when I was with like my non-binary person I was dating, like suddenly like me being a horse girl was like part, you know, Huh. It was like anything that was even slightly gender nonconforming in my childhood got brought into this yeah. like case that I was always trans. Yeah. Yeah. I had a joke about informed consent and, and one of the checkboxes being the X-Files, but, um, yes, but I wanted to segue <laughs> into, into those, uh, that Facebook, um, group that fourth wave now has been publishing on Twitter of oh these mothers who are obsessing about the gender of their child. And, and yeah. it really reminded me what you just said. It's like, you're, 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 you're at a position 
and I guess your early 20s that you're talking about, and you're looking back at your childhood, and you're interpreting the whole story of your childhood, because now you have a narrative that, that can right. resolve it or solve it in a way. Um, and it's like now these mothers are kind of doing the same thing. They're, they're looking for every instance of mitigation from an expectation of the ideal uh, feminine, I guess. Uh, in there, mm-hmm. or the ideal male, I guess, or the, or a manifestation of the feminine in their male child, or the masculine in their female child. Yeah, yeah, and it's a desired narrative, and like frankly, memory and and how we recall the past is always affected by what we want right now. You know, like when we think about what our parents did in the past, it has to do with how we feel about our parents right now in this moment, right? So mm-hmm. if you have a really strong desired narrative. Like you want to, like you de- like desperately hate some part of your body, you want to cut it off, you're gonna be able to build that narrative, right? Yeah. And if you are a parent who, whose sense of community and identity is based on having a trans kid, like you are, you are gonna get your, you are gonna make sure that your your kid's a trans kid. That is, I didn't think about that. Like I was very deeply disturbed by reading those. Um that Facebook stuff. And I need to, when it, when the dust settles, I'll try to put together an episode on that because they sent me all the files that I need to scrub of personal information. But that these, that these mothers, mostly mothers, it seems, but I don't know. Um, mostly mothers are using their child as a pass to gain, you know, acceptance and community. And the child is the ticket into this community. And, and, that's another danger of, I guess, ideal ideology writ large, and it that that's it's a it's a mutation of what the uh, the peak resilience girls um, kind of talk about when they talk about like getting into this culture and then like and then building up their transness out of this culture, and then like when they go to detransition, like what's more difficult to get off the hormones or to let go of all your friends and all your community, and the community has a, such a strong pull. Uh, yeah to that and and so when that transfers into uh and i i don't want to go down the road but it seems like a a a female typical kind of desire to want to plug into a group on that level or in that way not that men don't um but but there seems to be something that i'm seeing uh arise in, in females that are uh, in their teen years and then these mothers like also needing to like this ideology has been built um, around like these certain communal um, rituals and and so it's just so dangerous when now these women these adult women are projecting that onto their children and then you know buying them like fake penises or I guess maybe coaching them in binding which will have spinal problems and chest problems and stuff like that. Yeah, can we talk about like one specific screen grab that you probably saw? Yeah. Um, did you see the screen grab by the I don't recall if it was a mom or a dad talking about how they were having trouble like selling their trans daughter on keeping up estrogen injections or moving from puberty blockers to estrogen injections because their trans daughter had discovered masturbation. And so and masturbation is wonderful and a lot of fun. And why would you want to give it up? And their daughter didn't want to give it up. And it's like, well, that's a wonderful thing. Like, yeah. that's actually 
what your trans daughter is supposed to be developmentally doing right now. Yeah, the the parent was upset. If I read that correctly, the parent was upset that their child wanted to get off hormones because the child couldn't orgasm while the hormones were in their body. And like the parent was having a problem, not with the orgasm, but with the loss of the transness of their child, which is right. It goes back to that. They were talking about it. Like it was their kid being short sighted. Like it was how, like it was so short sighted of their kid to value orgasm over the aesthetic effects that the puberty was going to have. And it was like, wait one second. Your kid has found something better than exogenous hormones, and that's masturbation. So, like, just <laughs> let your kid masturbate. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful thing <laughs> that your kid wants to touch your, themselves. Huh. Anyway, so crazy. Sorry. So crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. The, uh, the, this is – I, I want to get risky – um, we've been, we've actually been like really crazy all all this phone call. So okay, well, I, I, I bet started it's not with my that risky. my trans dream. Um, <laughs> right? Yeah, <laughs> that was pretty wild. I love. But it. what is the significance of the breast? Why why was the why is or was the breast itself um, a hor a horrible thing or a horrific thing or inspiring such disgust in you i mean it, it doesn't seem like it was the fatty tissue or the way it brown bounced because you didn't have a sports bra it seems like it had a psychological significance and i ask not just to get into huh. you but I, I think that there's probably other females young females that like have are interrupted by that protrusion yeah well i mean it is true that it's legit that once you get breasts your interactions in public change dramatically okay so that's just the truth. Like how you will get reacted to in public changes dramatically in often like weird and scary ways. Okay. And I think adult women resolve that by getting a new skill set, but there are years where you don't have that skill set yet, right? Like like now if a man is yells huh. something disgusting at me, I know exactly how to be in- incredibly scary. But like yeah. You know, at 14, I certainly didn't know that. Huh. Um, but so, so the landscape shifted and the, it came down to like this very specific body part that you experienced the, the growth of that, that kind of reshaped the world or reshaped the way that people saw you. Yeah, that. And then I think also, um, like, uh, I don't want to get too much into this because I think sometimes this theory is overblown. I do think porn has something to do with it. You know, like a lot of times when we think about like where people see images of breasts and the kinds of breasts that they see images of, you're either seeing breasts in like Victoria's Secret ads or you're seeing them in porn, right? And so that's a very specific kind of breast. It's usually like a surgically enhanced breast, right? And like uh, Hmm. a lot of women's natural breasts look very unlike surgically enhanced breasts. Um, which I think can feel humiliating, like, you know, just because of that. And then also like really like degrading and humiliating things happen to the people whose naked breasts you see, Yeah. so so I think, yeah, I think a lot of times breasts, having breasts feels like a humiliating experience to young women. Yeah, I mean, I'm glad that we don't live in a society where it's compulsory for 
teenage boys to wear tights, you know, like, cause that would have that really should be. Let's do disrupted. That. <laughs> that's new. Let's make society better. No, that's awful of me. I'm sorry. I, I don't, let's not punish teenage boys just cause Listen, it's going to be a girl. The, the banana lobby would go way up. At least we know that. So somebody would benefit. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> oh God. Yeah. No, but yeah. The, the, I, yeah, the, I know, but I mean, I was trying to reference like, like the hyper awareness that I had about that body part and like, okay, like this is something that's seen all the time now. And like, I have like very easy ways of covering that up, you know, and like, it's usually be below a desk, it's below a counter. I can't imagine yeah. like this one characteristic that has a very uh, sexual uh, value in our society um, all of a sudden, like, it's just something that you have to like deal with all the time. And it's like right at eye level. And sometimes that's the eye level that people like see first, you know? Um, yeah. And, but it is interesting also that, that the, this isn't just about you, but like, like the attitude towards masturbation and porn, like, like the orgasm is good and healthy and beautiful and wonderful. Uh, the ways of achieving orgasm though, have a number of different societal consequences because insofar as you're depicting other people in order to achieve your orgasm, then there's a whole yeah. ethical value set that, that in, insofar as we don't talk about porn, um, pornography to young people, we leave out these ethical questions or, or just yeah. like, not even just like, like a moralizing way of thinking about it, but just like, just questions about like, Who's that person in that image? Where did they come from? How are they enhanced? How are they made to look like what you want versus yeah. how, how have they, you know, versus how the people that you interact with are either made or not made in ways that you do want. Yeah. Porn is tricky. Porn is real tricky. Um, and how it, how it impacts, um, hmm. how it impacts, you know, like, whatever porn you consume and how it impacts how you end up having sex is I think very interesting. And then, um, the kind of sex that porn obviously can't actually portray because sex, there are kind, you know, I think there are lots of like sexual experiences where like it's a, it's a very embodied experience. You're not going to be able to capture it in a visual format. Right. It would be, or it would be like a cinem cinematic, mm. like real achievement to be able to capture the feeling of like really being intimate and stuff like that. Yeah. So, yeah. So if you're 13, like, you know, 13 year olds don't know anything. And then like if they <laughs> consume <laughs> all yeah. this like gonzo stuff, sometimes literally gonzo stuff, like, mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's tricky though. I'm not trying to get into like a moralizing thing. Yeah. Um, I just, I just, I do, I do think it has a lot of impacts on like what we think about our bodies and how our bodies fit together and stuff. How did you um, transition then into recognizing? How did the the gender dysmorphia like turn into what you're calling body dysmorphia now? You said it's pretty recent, but like, what what? what are the attitudes or the, the ideas that kind of came to light that, that shifted it away from just the femaleness? Yeah. You know, something that I'm really grateful for is that one, I'm really grateful that I just kind of like circumstances were perfect for me to just like get out of the trans community. And I sort of like left in a very freaked out state 
but I don't think that I would have necessarily, I think that if I hadn't been so freaked out, I wouldn't have like gotten so far away and I needed to get far away. Um, and then like, I kind of got serious about tracking the symptoms and I really, really, really think that people should track their symptoms. I think you should rate your symptoms. I think you should be like, scale from one to 10, how bad is gender dysphoria today? Mm. Because for me, at least, like the patterns are actually really, really clear that hmm. like, for instance, like there was a time in my life where I was smoking lots of weed. Like weed is not in any way good for me and dissociating from my body. So like, it's actually a pretty clear link. Like if, if I'm, if I do that, I will probably not that day, but maybe like a day later, two mm. days later, three days later, like, you know, get that feeling of like wanting to tear my body off. Hmm. Um, so like for me at least, and I'm, by the way, I'm not saying that everyone's gender dysphoria is like this. Okay. Like. I think there's probably huge diversity in, in the experiences we call gender dysphoria. Yeah. I'm just saying for me, like once I started tracking it, the experiences that were creating it became real clear. Hmm. It so seems then, like you kind of digested the information. Like, like the, 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 one of the difficult things about being an embodied person isn't just having a body, but like persisting through time. And like you, you keep on having the same stimulus over and over and over again. And it, not a lot of people are taught the skills to actually just map out their experience and see how it's cause and effect and, and what's really going on. So it seems like you one step totally. is like you really digested being a historical biographical entity like something happened here. This is this is what happened over here. And then again and again. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that I. I think maybe other people can do that a little more without like a paper and a pen and stuff. But, um, like I really need to create data and then like look at the data and I'm not saying that I had a spreadsheet or anything, but it was really writing and journaling that did it. Hmm. But like I need to get it out on the page so that I can like go back a week ago and be like, Oh, that's what all my thoughts were a week ago when I was freaking out. Um, so, so yeah, so now, hmm. like, I think that when I first left the trans community, I still, I still was maybe mourning the loss of like understanding that that fantasy dude I wanted to be was like never, never in the picture, never was going to be in the picture. And so I think for a while I was still mourning that, but hmm. I'm pretty over it now. It's fine hmm. <laughs> that I'm not, that that's not going to be me, you know? It's a, but it's it was like a the, morning thing. It was yeah, sad. the death of a lover, lover uh, in a way. Yeah, a little bit, yeah. Yes, he was with me for a long time. One of the things that you mentioned in your talk in Urbane uh, was, I don't know how to say this right, you said it just perfectly, and it's something that I thought about, but like, uh, like mourning the loss of time uh, that, that detransitioners will undergo uh one one theme is that they spend a lot of time in this community and then this thought process um and they they invest a lot of energy and money and resources into this thing and then they have to like it's kind of like the sunk cost fallacy coming yes. back to bite you in a way yeah that was big for me because i um 
I just like transitioned at a really bad, like developmentally, I transitioned at the same time that my friends were getting married and having their first kids. Huh. Yeah. And so that was like, that kind of sucked to come out of those years and be like, shoot, I, I was really broke. So I like, I'm, uh, you know, when I came, when I detransitioned, I was like the brokest I'd ever been, like embarrassingly broke. Like hmm. my friends now like owned houses and were married and I like was just, hmm. uh, it was just a bad time to be like, shoot, I got to start over, you know? Hmm. And, um, it was definitely Could, a sunk cost. Oh, go on. Say. Would you, <clears throat> would you mind just kind of dating this, uh, in, in like how old you were or about? Yeah. I transitioned at 30, which is like a lot older than a lot of the yeah, okay. transitioners out there. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So I was trans identified for a little bit before then, but like I took testosterone at 30. So I took testosterone at 30 and then literally attended four weddings. <laughs> and, um, <Huh>. <laughs> yeah. And huh. so when I did, de- yeah, it was, it was really interesting. Um, so yeah, it was like humble. And I, I took two years off of grad school to like, cause like I was like, Oh my grad school is homophobic and transphobic. I can't be here. Hmm. Like, yeah. Like I was going to transfer to another program and then was like, and then kind of was like, wait, this was super unrealistic of me to think that you can transfer grad school credits. And oh, yeah. so, sorry, that's not, that's not interesting. Like, well, no, it, no, it is in so far as, as the way that you were thinking was blocking you off from opportunity. It was, it was really limiting your world. Yes. Wow. Yes. Thank you for noticing that. Yes. Cause I felt like, I do feel like that's one of my big regrets from that time in my life is that like my world just kept getting smaller and smaller and smaller, like the kinds of workplaces that I could be comfortable in and the kinds of like the kinds of social relationships that I could be comfortable in. It just like, like, um, it just turned into this little dot of like, okay, I can be comfortable in like this one and a half block radius and with these three people. And, um, you know, I, I think when I was deep in it, I was like, this really isn't who I am. Cause I'm the kind of person who like knocks on doors during get out the vote drives and stuff. Like okay. I, my real self is that I can like go and talk to strangers and make friends with them. Huh. So to have a time in my life where I was like, like constantly uncomfortable, constantly scared was very notable yeah. and strange. Yeah. That's, that's one thing that I see, um, with a lot of the, uh, it's a misnomer, but progressive re- progressivism rhetoric, which is actually regressive, and what used to be called liberals are very illiberal now. And I'm, I don't want to yeah, enter go into. Yeah, for that. it. I love it. I have it. a problem with that. But one theme that I see over and over again that it just, it, it just there's a flag that goes off, and it's that when you start to call out homophobia, transphobia, racism, sexism, uh, not that those things don't exist, but once you start making it the central part of your mission to call out, what you do is you start seeing it everywhere and then you start feeling more and more on edge and less and less comfortable and less able to actually reach out and actually resolve that problem or the bigotry in other people. Because now you're, you're, you're hardening like to go back to the root of the word cancer, like you're making 
a shell and something hard, something very un- immutable and unchangeable out of everything. And then, and then what you end up doing is really limiting yourself. Um, I love it. Yes, I totally agree. Because how people are educated, that always happens because of a meaningful relationship. Like people learn through first we bond to someone, then we learn from them. Hmm. And so if you're first if, if the first thing you do when you meet someone is you're like, wait, are you homophobic? Are you transphobic? Are you racist? Are you, uh, are you sexist? If you're looking for all the ways that people are problematic, first of all, everyone is. So you are going to find the ways that they're problematic. But you also just created big obstacles to a relationship. Yeah. And they're not going to want to hear anything you have to say. Yeah. I certainly never want to hear anything anyone has to say to me after they say that I'm one of those words. You know, like, yeah, I don't want to hear what you have to say about anything after that. And like uh, politics is about talking to people. So Hmm. if no one wants to hear what you have to say, you're really bad at politics. (laughs) That's so that's so funny. We're so fucked up because our politics are all about shutting everybody else down. (laughs) Yeah, our politics is our politics are fucked up in on a whole new level these days, really. I think I I just don't think that you should get to have opinions about politics if you haven't like actually gone to talk to a stranger about politics mm. at any point like in real life. You should have to have that experience before you get to like write essays on the internet about. It's interesting. That's a that's a wonderful form of gatekeeping. You have to know yeah, how but... to be friendly. <laughs> yes. Oh, I love that. That actually is really what I believe. I really don't think that you should have opinions about politics until you at least know how to be friendly. You don't have to be friendly all the time. You have to have the skill set. That is what I think. Thank you for articulating that. <laughs> what were you in grad school with before you tried to transfer? What Or for? What, what were you going for? Oh, it was the same thing. It was family therapy. But huh. when I first went, I wanted to be a sex therapist, which like... I was I didn't really understand what sex therapists do. I I would never want to be a sex therapist these days. What what is what, what is a sex therapist? Is that somebody who introduces candles to the bedroom or yeah, or the pouring of candles on each other into the bedroom? <laughs> my vision of sex therapy was that I was going to help like married women have orgasms with their husbands. That's not what a real sex therapist would huh. do. I think a sex therapist would It's like people with bigger problems than that hmm. um uh but so it was it was a it's a it, i went to a family therapy program and then actually like in family therapy um it can be a little bit of a conservative like in terms of the education you get in a family therapy program it's it's very focused on child raising and like what kind of parenting produces healthy kids so it was that was not what I was expecting to learn and mm. <laughs> at all. I was, you know, I was, I was all about like sex back then. <laughs> so, <laughs> so was that, probably. yeah, I will, I will say that like, I feel like in terms of child rearing and stuff, I got much more conservative partly because of my education. And then like now the work I'm, I'm pretty like, I, I'm, I'm pretty conservative in terms of like how parenting should be done and yeah. the kinds of homes that kids should have. Well, that, that's the thing about libertine, libertinism, libertinism, or like, you know, I guess hedonism and stuff. It's, it's all great until like you're exposing a child to that. 
then it then it just it totally wrecks an entire life. Yeah. Yeah. I absolutely agree. I think like um kids childhoods are so short these days. It's hmm. kids don't hardly get any time on this planet before like you know they hear about what's happening on like law and order SVU and stuff like yeah, kids know yeah. what a sex crime is like really young these days. Yeah. And I do wish that like kids got much a lot more years on this planet of like not having to worry about stuff like that. Hmm. And certainly not having to worry about whether they have are going to give up their fertility and orgasms forever. But, yes. Fertility, yeah. orgasms and less death on TV. This is the Gary Callahan <laughs> platform. For yeah. 2020. Ooh, I love it. <laughs> Fertility, <laughs> orgasms, less death on TV. I could win. Right? <laughs> no. Well, maybe. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> no, I it says no. nothing about healthcare. I guess fertility is probably tied to healthcare. So. I just reshift all the issues. We're not going to talk about any. We're not going to talk about the wall. We're not going to talk about healthcare. <laughs> no, like we're just going to talk about fertility, guys. Hmm. Do do you um do that? I I really appreciate what you were saying about like becoming conservative and like there's that old trope about you know like people like just growing more conservative as as they age, and and I wonder if there's not like some sort of like nuanced discussion about like keeping certain libertarian optimistic values as you do become saddled and straddled with the responsibility for a young life and then for a bunch of wealth that you're just uh, accumulating. And then you just kind of have mm. to take care of that stuff. It just, it seems like the only people who can afford to be hyper progressive are people who are already well off um, or the young that just, I'm, and, and I'm totally doing stereotypes and stuff, but like there's this, that middle class, it's like you can only afford to be so progressive. Yes. Be you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's so interesting. Cause I was talking to my dad about this and like, definitely like through detransition and also just like being, becoming, you know, like being serious about my career and just like growing older. Um, like my values have gotten much more middle-class. Like <laughs> I'm much more like, you know, people should really try and work it out before they get divorced. You know, <laughs> like, <laughs> Kids shouldn't watch TV after eight o'clock. Kids should have a bedtime every night, you know? And like, <laughs> it does, hmm. it does have a lot to do with economics. And yeah. like, um, if, if, um, like, especially like if you're trying to go from like lower middle class to truly middle class, like, um, you just, you have to live a kind of careful life. And I think those values or that kind of lifestyle kind of has to do with living a careful life. Yeah. It seemed to go back to that Jonathan Haidt, um, the Righteous Mind. I don't know if you've read it, but um, I didn't. Do you know who Jonathan Haidt is? He's a yeah, but what? Tell me about the book though, because I definitely uh, don't know what's in that book. Well, he just talks about moral foundations theory, and he talks about how he was a liberal and he could never understand conservatives. But then he started researching like what's actually informing informing the conservative mindset. And how there's a, a broad set of values that people uh, have, like there's uh, like a disgust kind of value and then uh, a loyalty value. And then oh. like there's this thing called the Care Harm Foundation. 
and a lot of progressive moralizing um, is built on like caring for the other person and like avoiding harm. So you have a lot of stuff about like uh, protecting immigrants, protecting all these protected classes and avoiding harm. Like, so like this care harm foundation. And it, it just seems, it's, it's, it's just seems very odd that when you're entrusted with a, a single individual, let's just say, for example, a child, which is just the standard thing that you're all of a sudden entrusted with that you do yeah. have this care harm. Like you want to protect them from, from harm and you want to care for them. But because you are so rooted in that material reality with that child, that economic reality of the child, that you have to make a bunch of other uh, evaluations of how you you interact with society at large, like who you're loyal to. I'm going to be loyal to people who are going to protect me. Um, I'm going to have a very strong disgust foundation because there's certain behaviors that are going to corrupt the child in the way of like physically corrupt them or like lead them down certain sorts of behaviors that will end up getting them stuck in a very uh, short feedback loop of, of running after pleasure. Right. Um, so you you just start getting revolted from, uh, you, you find pornography revolting because you see how that will shape your child's mind. Let's just say that. So it seems like, like progressivism as an ideology, if it's not rooted in that very conservative basis of like, yeah, we do need to take care of as many people as possible, but like, how do you do that realistically? How do you really do that realistically is the bigger question. Like with, uh, 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 AOCs, I can never pronounce her name. So I I apologize for that. But Alexandria, uh, Cortez, uh, Octavia Uh Cortez, like with the green new deal, how like they're going to outlaw SUVs and like change the whole world. This great big dream um, but like, if you actually look at like how much that'll cost, it's like, there's no way that we can get that. Yeah. 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 Um, keep going. I I feel like I kind of, I feel like you're one sentence away from what oh, I should yeah, respond to. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, there was one more thought. Thank And thank you for letting me ramble. Um, yeah. thanks for letting me have a discussion. Um, it, it seems like when, we go out into the world insofar as Twitter is the world insofar as, as political discourse is something that we do have discourse with and, and start to build bridges with people who are really concerned with um, uh, the rights of other people, the rights of, of trans people, the rights of gay people. But like, that doesn't seem like to be a hot button issue, but the rights of all these people and they're very inflamed about changing the world right now. And they see anybody who questions them as not just a block to progress, but somebody who's actually defeating progress, like as they speak, like, have you developed tools or attitudes in, in dealing with those people? Oh, no, I've gotten way that? worse at dealing with those people. For oh, really? Certain. Okay. Huh. Yeah, I can't deal with those people at all. I mean, just to say in my real life, I hardly come across those people anymore. Yeah. Which I used to live only among those people. Oh, okay. So, huh. um, yeah, I mean, I, I think... Um, oh, gosh, what do I want to say about this? There's so much to say. You know, it's so much harder coming up with realistic plans like actually coming up with a plan that you can fulfill is incredibly hard and you kind of like have to plan on failing again and again and again right so especially in the political arena to actually come up with 
a workable system, like you're going to fail and get humiliated again and again and again. Um, and I, uh, what I see, especially from the Democrats, and I am still a Democrat despite this, um, is that um, hmm. we maybe I don't think that we show enough respect to um, people who have a real track record of like um, actually passing lots and lots of legislation. <laughs> I think that we get way more enamored with like people who actually don't have a legislative track record, but are kind of like saying, you know, they have an exciting image like AOC or they're saying like, you know, they're very good at speaking or something like that. Um, hmm. and, um, and, and then, you know, I, I really would like to continue to vote Democrat for my lifetime. I really would like to, but I, we need to start prioritizing like people who have proven that they can actually pass legislation and like and that always means getting re some republicans to vote with you like it mm -hmm. it just always means that mm -hmm. so um yeah i don't know i definitely there's not enough people don't actually uh respect practicality enough they don't in general yeah i feel really strongly about that yeah <laughs> you're really people showing really like... your your codgerliness with that <laughs> <laughs> no, it's true. Okay, I want to just keep going and get angry. Okay, can I rant about something real quick? Please, bring me. Yeah, okay. Okay. So as part of my work, I got to assess for suicide risk a lot. Okay, like that's just part of the job. And um, there are three main protective factors when you're assessing for suicide risk. If someone has a strong religious belief that suicide is a sin, that's a great protective factor. Like someone who believes that is way less likely to commit suicide. The other two things are having a pet or having a, a kid. So like, so if you want to make sure that you don't kill yourself, like probably get a pet, probably have a kid. Okay. And probably join the church. Yeah. Um, so, um, so I saw like on Facebook, one of my like counselors I went to school with posted this thing about shaming people for suicidal ideation and how like, um, calling suicide a sin was shaming people, right? So I am someone who actually, like, I did spend, like, six months of my life, like, deeply suicidal at some point, at, mm -hmm. like, when I was trans. And, um, and so I feel really, really strongly about people not killing themselves. I feel, I, I honestly think that all this detransition stuff, um, the, the moral upside of it is that if you reach a point where you're either going to, where you think you might kill yourself and then you think, or maybe I'll detransition, like detransition instead. Don't kill yourself. Like okay. yeah. just keep going. Hmm. Um, but it just like, it just kind of like shook me to see her talking about how, what I think of as this great protective factor, this religious belief that it's wrong to kill yourself is shaming people hmm. because like, that belief that it might be deeply wrong to kill yourself will keep some people from killing themselves. And I'm not sold that like, go on, you're, you're having a lot of trouble with this. Oh, no, no. I'm just saying, okay. I, I kind of understand body shaming, but like, but disembody shaming is like a whole new level of weird. Yeah. I mean, I guess the thing is you don't want to shame someone for having the idea that they might want to kill themselves. Because, like, 
Well, first mm. of all, like lots and lots of people have that idea, right? I've had that idea. Like lots and lots of people have that idea. Um, it's more a sign of how sad you are than anything else, you know? So, but mm. is it wrong to be like, but that action is unequivocally wrong? Like, yeah. I don't think that it's psychologically harmful to people to like be like, no, but it's wrong to do that. Well, it's displacing, it's displacing, uh, it's displacing the, the, the problem or this finding the solution off of this one thing. It's like, okay, that might end the problem, but that's not a solution. And, and right. saying that very strongly, I, I think if the person can't hear that phrasing, but just say it's a sin because they're, they're at that level of narrative, then it still has the same outcome that they have to find another way to deal with the problem other than yeah, just true. ceasing to exist, which right. doesn't solve the yeah. problem. It just, it doesn't solve the problem. Right. Yeah, it doesn't. You aren't going to be less sad when you're dead. That's not how sadness works. Um, but we don't know. Yeah. It's a, <laughs> right. Um, yeah. Yeah. Hmm. But to tie it back into the like making plans thing, it was like, so wait, if we take away this protective factor, if we're going to try and argue people out of this protective factor, like what's your plan for what replaces this protective factor? You know, hmm. ah, I've gone off the rails, but no, no, no. It made I me think really about, about it. The shame, shame is uncomfortable, but it's a very strong uh, directive force in our life. That if handled yeah. correctly on a societal level can actually shape society and help the individual get to a better place. Um, and that just that brings me back to what you were saying about the Democrats. And, and not only have the Democrats, and, and I will be voting Democrat, in, at least in the primary, um, which has already started for God. Ah, the torture just continues we never get a break but not only have the democrats not backed up people who can succeed but they haven't learned how to fail and a lot of the blowback from the that we're experiencing right now is because the democrats haven't been able to to lose gracefully and and Mm. instead have Mm. like they're just trying to flip the chessboard right they're trying to like flip the magic the gathering uh card table right yes Yes. And it just makes me think about the same thing with, with shame. It's like, instead of understanding how shame operates and learning from shame, there's like no shaming, no shaming. And then they go around and shaming all the people who are using shame. Uh, but, right. but the same thing with failure. It's like, it, it sucks to fail, but, but you have to learn from the failure. And that's, that's the prompt, like the failure or like, and it goes back to like what you were saying about like, having this condition or like this, this feeling of hatred of your body coming up over and over and over again. It's like, it reminds me of this story I heard when I was a kid about, uh, the blind deaf, uh, girl, uh, mute, uh, Helen Keller. Cool. I love it. Okay. <laughs> it's like Helen Keller. It's just like Helen Keller. There's a story in her autobiography of like her first teacher that started to, to try to really teach her, Every day they'd go down to a water fountain and the teacher stuck her hand under the water fountain and then poured the water onto her hand and then tapped her hand over and over and over again, like communicating that this is water, this is water over and over and over again. And like just the story, like 
was so beautiful because it's like that because she's describing that moment of realization of tying these two stimuli together and 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 then you can start to succeed like because failure is not like it's it's a prompt or or a psychological condition like disgust or or depression it's it's telling you something yourself is in communication with you and and, yes. the, and psychology is the tools of learning how to read what life is presenting you or what you're presenting yourself i absolutely i'm i'm totally into this because i do think um you know there was definitely a point especially when i was very very miserable and trans identified where i was like why on earth would I be given this really intense experience, this like gender dysphoric experience? Like why, like it, it felt like, okay, so I got handed this misery, but like I, there's no solution to it. And like, why would, why, why did I get handed it? Like why, you know, but like, um, you know, you're handed the experiences you're supposed to process. Like just what you said about digestion, you're handed what you're supposed to process, you know? Mm-hmm. And like, you know, it was because I couldn't see the end of the road yet. I couldn't yeah. see like six years out that there oh. was going to be a point in my life where I had jo- journaled it out. I couldn't see that there would be a point in my life where like, you know, there, there would be a point in my life where I felt like, oh, no, this actually is like one of the um, gifts huh. in my life that I got given this experience to have again and again and again and to think about. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um but, but, you know, when you're in it, you can't see yeah. six years out. And certainly I would say that, like, there's literally no way I could have imagined that six years out, you know, the context would have shifted so much and my life would have shifted so much yeah. and everything. So, yeah, I mean, I think the thing is, like, but that's what, just to bring it back, like, well, that's why suicide is so wrong because you can't see six years out and, you know, you can't you're going to cut yourself off from like a much more surreal set of blessings than you understand. Huh. You know? it, it seems like um, it's a, it's a lack of faith and I've had ah, pretty yeah. strong su- suicidal um, moments, but um, it's a lack of faith, but it's also a lack of love um, or the ability to love yourself. Yeah. And, 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 and more than just as you are right now, like really understanding and, 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 and that might be impossible for some of us to experience um, when we're, when we're stuck in that, not being able to see time, not really being able to trust the future self. Yeah. And I think a lot, you know, I read some quote that helped me a lot about self-love, which is like, love is an action, not a feeling. Right. And when I was, Hmm. so, you know, sometimes I feel pretty bad about like my body and stuff. Right. But like love is an action. Love isn't the feeling. The feeling is that's a separate thing. Right. So Hmm. like, I think the challenge is on days when you have really bad feelings about yourself, right. Or your body or your skills or, you know, your failures or your successes or whatever, like you have to keep doing loving action because that actually is self-love. So what's loving action for yourself today? Mm. Um, And uh, that helped me a lot, especially when I really got serious about tracking my gender dysphoria would be like, okay, so like what's, what's loving action, just whatever, whatever my um, feeling landscape is this day, what's, what's loving action for me? That idea, that concept, in the light of 
what's being peddled now is affirmation, which is based on a subjective feeling that we're going to change you because of the feeling you have right now. We're going to take this action based on this feeling. I don't know. Yes. Like it's so complex. I mean, and there's no one size fits all uh, solution to, to certain feelings. Um, yeah. I have a rant about this actually. Okay. This specific thing. So, You're very lovely um, when you rant. So, Oh, thanks. Great. <laughs> You're so patient. I love it. Um, so, you know, like a lot of my work is sep is helping people separate like the, the desires that you get from feelings because every feeling sends us a strong message about an action yeah. that we should take from, from the actions that will create the scenario they want to live out, right? So, like, what is the correct action for you? The correct action will create the situation you want. So, in a very real way, like, actions are justified by the situations they create. Okay. Right? Yeah. But a lot of times when we talk about strong feelings we act as if actions are justified by the feeling we had, right? Yeah. So when someone like punches their husband or whatever, they'll be like, I was so mad at him. And you got to be like, well, that's great. You were so mad at him. And yet that feeling doesn't justify the action, right? Yeah. Um, uh, the action is justified by what it created and it created like an assault charge or whatever. Yeah. And, um, uh, that for me, when I was like trans identified, um, I was very much taking actions as if the actions were justified by feelings. Right. So I feel miserable. I feel dysphoric. Thus, I should take testosterone. Right. And that's that's not the way to plan out an action. You should you should take testosterone if the testosterone, once you think about it very, very logically, will create the situation you want. Right. It shouldn't be like, I'm miserable, so I need testosterone. It should be like, in two years, I would like my body to look like this, my face to look like this, and testosterone actually will get me there. Hmm. And um, hmm. that's not what I did. And if my main critique for the therapist that I had back then is that she didn't in any way help me separate the feelings from the plan. And I, I do think that transition is a really tricky thing to actually do successfully. So you do actually need a therapist who will challenge your plans. Like, huh. wait, with your body, will testosterone actually help you pass? And that's not in any way what my therapist said to me. My therapist was like, um, you know, take testosterone and, and if it feels good, then you'll know that it's right. And like, that's, that's horrible advice. <laughs> testosterone huh. feels good to lots of people. But more than that, if you want to create a certain situation, you want to make sure that taking the testosterone gets you to that certain situation. Um, so I think that that's a big missing thing in a lot of mm. therapeutic response to gender dysphoria is this separating out the emotional experience from the actual planning. Yeah. From the, from the outcome. Right. Like you should yeah. only do the actions that create the outcome you want. Is there and not if you, a, if you keep running into outcomes that you don't want, then like very obviously something's wrong with your actions. Yeah. Is there not a selection pressure for therapists to be affirmative by the community that they're serving and won't the, the person who wants 
who is acting out of the feeling just find a therapist uh, that will cater to that way of thinking. I mean, I mean, beyond the the affirmative model being pushed on the level of psychology in the medical profession. Um, mm-hmm. But isn't there like a capitalistic pressure that's being exerted by people getting business from the people who are going to affirm and push them forward? Yeah, I think there's both a capitalistic pressure um, and then there's like sort of a, a coercion happening too, where it's like you you certainly do not want like someone getting in a, a trans like Facebook group and saying that like, uh, you weren't sufficiently affirmative or anything like that. Mm-hmm. I do think that there is a way to, to, I think that there is a way to affirm the identity and challenge shitty plans though. Huh. Like I, I think my therapist could have been like, yeah, you're non-binary. Your best life is as looking like a dude. However, from the plan you're telling me, I'm not sure how you're going to get from point A to point B. Yeah. You know what I mean? That's very different than challenging okay. the identity. Yeah. So. Huh. She maybe could have gotten away with that. <laughs> do you uh do you challenge your identity? My identity? Yeah. Oh. Who is Wait. Carrie Callahan? That's a, oh. a reference to 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 the uh, Mad Men season 3, no, 4, season 4. Opening. Wait, what? Which Mad Men episode? Which Mad Men episode is this? Uh, the first se- uh, the first episode of season four. Uh, when when the reporter asks uh, Don Draper, so who's who's Don Draper? Do you, I love that. Do you know Do you know Mad Men? <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, okay. I love Mad Men. Okay. I love Mad Men because right. the reporter only yeah. has one leg, and and Robert has to make a quitty uh, quip about that or a witty quip, quitty whip. <laughs> a whippy quit. <laughs> um but my, um, my question on, on on like to to be more like manageable the question is and, and this is i i guess this is a question that i've confronted too in my life you no know, i have when when i was obsessed with an identity i was obsessed with the identity of myself as something not as and and by something is like i wanted to be a writer and i wanted to be a famous writer and like obsessed about that and 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 i i wasn't that so i spent every day in a cafe like i got to be this identity i want to manifest this destiny right and that yeah. that was a big part of my identity which it's a little bit different than the identity that i see um being manifested uh or being promulgated by young people right now and probably forever like i'm emo this or i'm trans identified i'm 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 in this political spectrum or that political spectrum like there's always that specter of identity which i think probably mm-hmm. my christian upbringing and then my parents being involved in a in in a Christian sect gone awry that I was always kind oh, of. Uh, I want to know more about that. Oh well, yeah, well, yeah. I, I, we could talk about that some other time. <laughs> yeah. But I was always put off by the idea that that a group identity or being seen as something was sufficient. I, I had to. I had to have product. Like my identity was tied into <sighs> producing something. Right. So. <sighs> So that was I and I think that that was the best way to to channel like that the young person's obsession with identity into a production. It's like because I have to in order to be this thing, I have to produce this thing. Right. In order to be a great writer, I have to come up with great writing. So how the fuck do I do that? Right. Um, Yeah. 
And so, but as I matured and, and I stopped like obsessing or fantasizing that a reporter was talking to me about how awesome of a writer I was, you know, like, you know, all those fantasies melted away. And I just realized that like, that that's not my path or like my writing is for people after I'm dead or whatever. Um, I started, and, and as I was broken down by life and went through a lot of different crises that like I lost I, I lost my identity, like, like in relationships, like I had a relationship, the relationship fizzled. I, I'm no one now. I'm, I'm nothing. I'm, I'm literally, I'm, I'm a snail without a shell now. Right. I'm just this blob. Man, on the that's how I am with breakups. Yes. Okay. Go on. <laughs> <laughs> I am the worst breaker upper ever. Go on. Really? Some people are so yes. good at it. I'm so bad. at. It. <laughs> I'm, I'm the messiest asshole. I'm the mess. Go on. It will, it takes, years of my life have gone to dumb breakups, yeah. but go on. I want to hear more. Well, I, yeah, I hope you don't break up too many times more in, in your life. Thanks. Okay. Um, but, but now in my early forties and looking at identity and, and kind of seeing it as idolatry in a way, like, and, and it's, it's, it's important to have an idol insofar as that idol gets you to that next stage of your life where you have some sort of capital, you have some sort of skills at the end of this. Um, and, and to avoid the question of like, well, how much did you lose uh, by, by going down the path of chasing an identity? Like, what did you really gain from that? And like, who is Carrie Callahan mm. now? And like, how do you relate to her? And like, how do you understand her? I mean, and I, that, that, if you would ask that question of me, who's Benjamin Boyce, I would totally have like identity dysmorphia because I don't even like yeah. my name. I don't like being a person, you know? Um, yeah. But like, how he do you manage I don't that? like being a person. Is that what you just said? It just, it freaks me out. Like having a person being a person. Being a person. Yeah. Yeah. That's the truest shit. You're right though. It's freaky. It's freaky being a person. Um, you know, I don't know. Like I, I've been real stupid, like, a lot of my life. And, like... Um... You're not alone, okay? <laughs> You're just rare in that you can see it. <laughs> so, like, you know, I had, I had like, a long... Like, almost, like, eight years of my life where I was like, I'm a stand-up comic, right? Yeah. And I feel like I was so invested in that identity that I wasn't picking up on the fact that I was really miserable doing stand-up comedy hmm. do you know what like i missed all the process i missed all the ways that didn't fit me because i wanted so badly for that i needed that identity so badly yeah and then um i i frankly think that working through that with stand-up kind of like helped me with transition and detransition because i sort of was like i had already gone through like a oh wait I'm invested in this identity that's making me miserable. And then when transition made me miserable, I was like, oh, shit, I'm back here. I'm back invested in an identity that's like day in and day out, bringing me down and bubbing me out and stuff. Hmm. Um, so, like, I, I think I'm, like, really trying to be a lot more flexible these days. And, like, especially with detransition, I feel like I've kind of had to pivot a lot. Like, you know, for a while I was, like, writing, like, a, a blog under, like, a pseudonym. Yeah. And then I was making YouTube videos. And now, like, what am I doing? Like, I'm tweeting. And, like, every two months I write an essay, you know. <laughs> and, yeah. like, um, hmm. so, like, 
I, I kind of am just like trying to keep actually being flexible. Like I, I, um, I certainly am invested in being a family therapist. Like I, I like it. It makes me happy. Um, it makes me feel like powerful and I, I enjoy, you know, I, it's good for my spirit. It's good for my spirit. It's good for my like conception of human beings and how yeah. good we are. Yeah. I definitely have a higher opinion of humans because of getting to do this work. Yeah. Um, so since that's good for me, I'm just going to keep doing that for as long as I can do it, you know? Yeah. Um, and beyond that, I don't know. Um, I think part yeah. of middle age is becoming kind of middle class. And what middle class means to me is that you, you're kind of more your job than anything else. And then you get to wake up when you retire and like, and just be a person again. But like, like in the, yeah. that prime, that long afternoon of life, it seems like you, you, you're, I have this story about like this town where there's only one person in the town but he, but there's 40 of him and like one is a poet and one is the uh, oh. sculptor and one is the alchemist and one is the, you know, the, the, the lamplighter and the, the construction worker and the composer. And basically it's, oh. it's this town, it's set in the middle age and they're all in their middle age. Right. And there's, there's only one other person and it's this single female entity that kind of goes around and wakes these men up to being real. Like once a day, each man gets like two minutes with her and they, they like, and she shows them who they are beyond just their constant activity. But like, it just seems wow. like middle age is just coming to grips with that constant day in day out cycle. That is so terribly boring in the mind of a 20 year old, you know, just like yeah. just this one thing over and over again, but like finding that work where you don't feel that strain is it's a gift and, and a struggle. Yes, totally. It is a gift actually. Um, uh, I feel, I feel like part of the reason I don't want to get too big into like kind of some kind of identity thing anymore mm. is, um, because I do have to like wake up day in and day out and figure out how to like be happy and, you know, how to be moral and ethical and happy and, um, and, uh, so that for me, is about like not getting too um, defined and too like, I want to be growing. I want to be changing. I want to be like greeting yeah. each new day. Yeah. I feel like I'm talking real cheesy right now. No, but, no. Yeah. I think I, I'm going to follow you in the cheesy line. It's like, I don't have a problem being Benjamin just so far as everybody understands that you're only ever interacting with the Benjamin who was like, not the Benjamin who will be, you know, like I just don't want to be stuck. I don't want to yeah. be like, that thing yes absolutely absolutely i reserve the right to keep growing up and like yeah. keep next year i should think about some things differently and be better at some stuff yeah as long as i don't like pick up an addiction or something you know well i don't know there's uh, like you you have your mocktail that that might be a cozy addiction yeah. for you. is <laughs> yeah. it ginseng what's the composition um, there is ginseng in this. Um, yeah, there's like uh, kava. Is that a thing? Kava. Sure. This is this was expensive. This was. <laughs> I bet it smells horrible. It's so good for you. <laughs> it is supposedly so good for you. Um, and 
a bottle, which was 12 servings, was $47. Wow, you are so bougie. I know, and I'm way too poor to be this bougie. It makes no sense for me to have bought this thing. But I can't, like, drink, and I, like, you know, like, so it's mm. like, yeah. What was the funny word that you called it uh, in our chat before we started ringing? Like, there was a cool word. Adaptogen. Adaptogen. <laughs> An adaptogen is supposed is an herbal thing that helps you respond to stress better. Okay. So my mocktail is full of things that help me respond to stress better. Well, I hope I hope I'm not a stressor in your day. <laughs> no, no, this was lovely. This was this was like a a bath. It was lovely. <laughs> well, sits bath. There we go. <laughs> That's this the best like thing. Salt. I mean, that's what I'm going to call my, my podcast, Bathing with Benjamin. Bask in my it. verbal sudsiness. Like, you need a video series where you're in a hot tub with people, right? Oh. With with Ray Blanchard, you and Ray and Dr. Blanchard in a hot tub, talking about how to get a feeling. Do it. Oh, my God, do it. Oh, you Jesus Christ. You would so into it. That'd be cool. No, and 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 if I can get funding, it'll be at like a, a hot tub in the back of like a like some big monster truck, and we can just drive through Arizona and like eat barbecue and yeah. talk about the issues of the day. Oh, that would be so rad. There's got to be some jokey thing like a because it's yeah. I mean, you're doing this gender stuff, but it's more than that, right? Yeah, um, I but I do feel like the back of a a pickup truck hot tub is the right setting. We're having these conversations, right? Yeah, either like a sandbox and we can be raking the sand and rearranging mm -hmm. rocks and talking about deep psychological issues. You know, yeah. like switch it up. You know, every season we have a different like medium in the back of the pickup truck. Yeah. Reserve your right to change. I love it. Yeah, no. Everything. Adapt. Going. Everything. I have a adapt. bunch of hats, but I don't get to wear them because I do all these interviews and I think it's disrespectful to show up yeah. with a pirate hat. But, you know. Yeah. We talked about a lot. We talked about a lot for a lot. And this is a wonderful, wonderful conversation. It was like we were on the radio. It's like you could be, uh, I don't know, you're the Howard Stern and I'm uh, Adam Carolla. I don't know who cool. you would be on the radio. <laughs> Do you have like a radio person that you want to be? Terry Gross? <laughs> Alex Jones. I don't Alex know. Is he Jones, on the radio really? Still? No, I, don't know. I can't radio. do his voice. I <laughs> he was never on the radio, right? <laughs> I don't know, maybe. No. You know, way back when, when I was crazy and trans, I had a a, a sex podcast. I was, I had oh! Sex <laughs> Is that still around? <laughs> no, you can't find any copies of it. Thank. Weird. Thank our Lord that, no, wow. you can't find any copies of my sex podcast because it was the most embarrassing, I mean, like the most embarrassing shit you can ever find. Wait, were, it was, was like a call-in show or? No, it was, it was live. It was, people would just come, we would just tape it live, but it was, um, awkward sex stories. Oh. Um, but like in front of an audience and like, Ooh. actually, actually people should not actually tell their awkward sex stories in front of an audience because, um, that stuff can get like really deep and like, yeah, yeah. don't do deep stuff in front of an audience. Actually, well, it's not. Yeah, safe. maybe I was going to do a live stream episode on my bottom surgery, but I got, I got five minutes in and then, and then I realized I was on a bunch of Oxycontin and that this is a horrible, horrible idea. 
And by bottom surgery, I mean literal, literal bottom surgery. Nothing fancy. Like, what? <laughs> what? Oh, my God. Well, we've all been on Oxy with bad ideas. No, I'm joking. But, um... Well, you know. Yeah. You no, know, I've had some good ideas on Oxy, too, actually. I have some, I have some amazing, some of the, my best literature was made with the aid of, of uh, Percocet, I think it was. Like this beautiful passage. But anyways, that's oh, a whole other great. conversation. <laughs> Don't try this at home, kids. Opiates are uh, none of your business. Stay out of them. None of your business. Yeah. yeah. Let's protect the kids. Kids need a longer childhood. So let's... Uh, yeah, I don't think people, kids are watching my show. That's why I make these really long videos. They don't have the stomach for it, you know? <laughs> that is the truth. They don't have the attention span. Nope. They really don't. We adult them right out of this conversation. <laughs> well, you say they're dopamine? Their dopamine's all fucked up. Kids' uh. dopamines are totally, like, because they've been hacked from, like, they've been watching, like, phones from, like, three. Yeah. They... I mean, I barely have an attention span, but like kids these no. days really don't have an attention yeah. span. Yeah, no, yeah, no. I have an intention span. <laughs> that sounds like the hippiest. <laughs> tell me, tell me what an intention span. Is. I don't know. What is this hippie cult thing that it's you just, have? I don't know. I'm <laughs> trying to be. Yeah, I know. That's the problem with being a punster. All of a sudden, you're a guru. You turn the corner and like, oh shit! I created a religion. I was just trying to make something funny. <laughs> Do it. Do it. Intention span. Like, let's work on that because that's that's we can make money off of that. No, no, there's money to be made. Actually, and in, in, in a slightly more serious, but not that much more serious note, I did have like I wrote the science fiction book, and it talks about like this brave new world where everybody's plugged into like this internet ethereal reality, um, but. I go in this huge, like, weird David Foster Wallace passage. It's all this footnote about, like, the the, the properties of human consciousness, which is it's all reduced into attention. And, like, we have these two, like, this X and Y axis of attention span, which is, like, how long you can pay attention to thing, and then attention pan, which is how much you can pay attention to at the same time. Oh. And, like, people, like, focus on the attention span, like, you know, for, like, a kid can only be attention to the one thing it's like no they just have a broader attention pan they, they need to be paying attention to a lot more just the shorter amount of attention oh i love that i yeah. actually really love that that's cool yeah. i'm gonna keep thinking about that develop you know, like it. i yeah i'm gonna develop it because um yeah i love that it is true like um Oh, I'm sorry. You just blew my mind. I'm going to keep thinking about that. I think that that might be a nice way to like talk to kids about how they about doing homework yeah. <laughs> and how they can focus on doing homework. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let, let's yeah. let's wrap it up because we're just yeah. looking at each other's eyes now. Um... OK. OK. Stop. <laughs> stop. You flirt. Jeez. Oh, <laughs> I keep on going to die. Okay. All right. Yeah, yeah. I had one more thing to say, but we'll leave okay. it there.